Episode 69, Thomas Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. I mentioned last episode that the only other founding father who could really rival John Adams' resume was Thomas Jefferson. And you could kind of say that everything Adams did, Jefferson did it too, and did it, well, better. They were both in the Continental Congress and both on the committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, but we all know it was really Jefferson who wrote it. They were both ambassadors to France, and while Adams and the French hated each other, Jefferson loved the French, and the French loved him. He was even a good friend of Lafayette and helped Lafayette in the writing of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. Both Jefferson and Adams served as vice president and then president. And while Adams's administration was remembered for bickering and for being unpopular, Jefferson was as popular as Washington, and his administration is remembered for peace, prosperity, and the growth of the United States. But myself, as a big fan of John Adams, I have to say here that Jefferson's administration was kind of set up for success by Adams. Jefferson inherited peaceful relations with France and Great Britain, largely because of Adams, an expanding economy, and a stable and more established federal government, plus an actually usable capital city. So at least some of Jefferson's success was due to Adams. Thomas Jefferson himself was born on April 13, 1743, in Virginia. Like George Washington, Jefferson's family owned a tobacco plantation, and Jefferson inherited about half of it, almost 5,000 acres, and this eventually became his residence of Monticello. Jefferson's family was one of the more prominent families of Virginia, and so, of course, Thomas received a first-rate education. He was first enrolled in school at five and studied under a tutor. As a youth, he learned Latin, Greek, and French. Now, those French lessons are going to help him out later in life. At 16, he enrolled in the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is the oldest college in the United States. He studied a broad range of things, but was definitely exposed to a lot of early Enlightenment thinkers. While he was there, he picked up a lifelong love of books. All of his life, he collected books. And late in his life, after the British had burned Washington in the War of 1812, he sold his entire library to the Library of Congress so they could use it to rebuild. At that point, his personal library, personal library, was over 7,000 books. After that, he rebuilt his own library up to almost 2,000 books, most of which he ended up donating to the University of Virginia after his death. In one of his letters to Adams, which I mentioned last episode, he said, I cannot live without books. That's actually a pretty good motto. After college, Jefferson studied law and became a lawyer. As a lawyer, he represented a lot of wealthy local clients, but he also represented several slaves who were seeking emancipation. In one case, he apparently even argued that all people, have a God-given natural right to freedom. So we have to stop right here and take a look briefly at Jefferson's complicated relationship with slavery and slaves. 
despite being a firm believer in the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Despite this, during his life, Jefferson owned several hundred slaves. One of the fundamental contradictions in Jefferson, and there's really no way to resolve it, is that on the one hand, he firmly believed that all men were created equal and should have liberty. But on the other hand, he was also a firm believer in state sovereignty and states' rights. And the core issue of states' rights was always the issue of slavery. The Southern states and the anti-federalists as well cared deeply about state sovereignty, mostly because they didn't want the Northern states to tell them that they had to free the slaves. I'm going to have to come back to that issue later in this episode and in other episodes, but it's a fundamental weirdness about Jefferson. In a lot of his writings, he seems very anti-slavery, but at the same time, he owned a lot of slaves throughout his entire life. And we'll have to come back to one of his slaves, Sally Hemings, as well. Anyway, Jefferson practiced law until he was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses in 1769. Now, the House of Burgesses is sort of like their House of Representatives. They just called them Burgesses for some reason back in those days. At about the same time, though, he began clearing some land at the highest point of his plantation. It was this hilltop that he named Monticello, which means Little Mountain in Italian. The house that he started to build there took on the name of Monticello as well. Jefferson loved working on the architecture of the house and on the land, and he would spend the rest of his life building and modifying and then tearing down and rebuilding Monticello. He moved into the first part of the building in 1770. Two years later, in 1772, he got married to his third cousin, Martha Wales Skelton, who was 23 and was already a widow. The next year, they inherited Martha's father's estate, which was almost 11,000 acres. That's a lot of acres. And it included over 130 slaves. But it also included a lot of debt, apparently. And this was the starting point of a constant struggle in Jefferson's life. Basically, from this point on, for the rest of his life, Jefferson was deeply in debt for one thing or another. It wasn't only the issue of inheriting the father-in-law's lands, but Jefferson always spent more money than he actually had, especially on Monticello and on books. He also liked to live well and dress well, and he liked wine. So he was often in debt for the rest of his life. Thomas and Martha, for their part, were happily married, and they had six kids, but only two of them survived to adulthood, Martha, second Martha, and Mary. Thomas's wife, Martha, died just 10 years after they had married, a few months after the birth of their last child. Jefferson took her death really hard, and he never, ever remarried. She died in 1782 after the Declaration of Independence, but before the Constitution was signed. Okay, so now back to Jefferson's career. After serving in the House of Burgesses, Jefferson was elected to represent Virginia in the Second Continental Congress, where he, at 33, was one of the youngest delegates. But he had already gained a really good reputation as a good writer, so it was Jefferson that Adams sought out to be the one who wrote the first draft of the Declaration of Independence. Apparently, there were some on the committee that wanted Adams to actually write the first draft, but Adams himself said, no, it should be Jefferson. And wow, that was a good choice. Jefferson, of course, drafted an amazing document, which we've talked about plenty in this podcast. Even though the 
original draft was much revised by the committee and later by the entire Continental Congress, but the structure of the document and the core ideas are all Jefferson's. I spent two whole episodes on that, in fact, so that's enough on it for now, but if you want more about the Declaration, go back to episode 61 and 62. At the core of the document is the Enlightenment idea that we all have unalienable God-given rights, including life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the right to overthrow a tyrannical government. That's one of the God-given rights that they lay out in the document. Jefferson himself is going to be against tyrannical governments for the rest of his life. And that's a complicated issue too, because the U.S. federal government, under his anti-federalist Democratic-Republican party, grew more than it did under Washington and Adams combined. So there's a bit of a tension there. After the Declaration of Independence was published, Jefferson became famous throughout the colonies. Well, throughout the new nation is what it was then. They weren't colonies after that, were they? After the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson went back to Virginia and worked with the new Virginia House of Delegates, which had replaced the Virginia House of Burgesses. And he was part of the team that drafted the new Virginia Constitution. Because remember, at this point, the states are all sovereign. There's no real national government. And each state is operating like its own little sovereign nation. So while he was there, he also proposed a bill to establish religious freedom in Virginia. And that bill prohibited the state itself from supporting any religious institutions or doctrines. And it would have basically removed the Anglican Church, which was very well established in Virginia, would have removed the Anglican Church as the official state church of Virginia. The bill didn't pass, but it did increase Jefferson's reputation and made him even more well-known. Jefferson, on the strength of this, was elected governor of Virginia in 1779 and then again in 1780. In 1781, during the Revolutionary War, Jefferson and the Virginia government had to flee Richmond because a British army, whose general was none other than the notorious Benedict Arnold, attacked the city and then burned it. Jefferson and the government survived and then eventually moved back to Richmond. In 1784, Jefferson was appointed by Virginia to be a Virginia representative of the Confederation government, that is, the not very successful federal government that existed until the Constitution was later ratified in 1789. And by the Confederation government, he was given the position of minister to France, along with Benjamin Franklin. After Jefferson was there in France for a year, Franklin came home to the United States, leaving Jefferson as the official minister. Apparently, the French foreign minister received him in his new role as the lead minister and said to him, I hear that you replace Monsieur Franklin. To which Jefferson supposedly replied, I succeed him. No man can replace him. Now, after a few years there in Paris, Jefferson sent for his surviving daughter, Polly, who came to Paris at the age of nine. She came with two servants, one of whom was the 16-year-old Sally Hemings. Now, Sally herself was the daughter of a slave, but her father was actually Jefferson's father-in-law, John Wales. So she was Jefferson's wife's half-sister, and she was either half or three-quarters white. She was supposedly fair-skinned and very attractive. You see where this is going, don't you? While they were in Paris, young Sally got pregnant, supposedly with Jefferson's child. 
Jefferson sent her back to Monticello with a promise that the child would be freed when it came of age. And to Jefferson's credit, he did do that. To Jefferson's discredit, he ended up having several other children with Hemings over the course of their lives. He did free them all when they came of age. So again, we've got a weird, complicated relationship between Jefferson and slavery, and also between Jefferson and his own slave. It's a weird contradiction, but it shows that none of our revered founding fathers were perfect saints. Adams had some family troubles too, and so did Franklin. Not to make light of it, but I find it interesting that these historical tidbits about their real lives have survived, and it makes them much more real and much more well-rounded, interesting characters. While Jefferson was in France, he was a companion of the Marquis de Lafayette, who had been a general in the French forces in the American Revolution. He and Jefferson became close friends, and Jefferson even advised him on the writing of the draft of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. Jefferson was a strong supporter of the French Revolution, but he was deeply saddened when it turned violent and terroristic. Also, while he was in France, the U.S. Constitution was being written by one of Jefferson's other close friends, James Madison, who had been one of Jefferson's regular visitors at Monticello and at the Virginia governor's mansion. They had many of the same views on government, and they shared a strong worry about central government becoming tyrannical. It's a very prescient fear that they had. Anyway, the Constitution was written while Jefferson was in France, and so he wasn't one of its signers, but he supported it as long as it did include the Bill of Rights, which it eventually did. There's some clear overlap between the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of the Rights of Man, by the way. In 1790, Jefferson was recalled to the U.S. by President Washington, who had just been elected as the first president. And Washington asked Jefferson to serve as the first Secretary of State. Now, Jefferson was the most anti-Federalist person in Washington's cabinet, and he frequently clashed with Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of the Treasury and who was a strong Federalist. Hamilton wanted the federal government to assume the state's debts and to create a national bank, which scared Jefferson, and rightly so. Jefferson frequently tried to thwart Hamilton's plans, in part because he was trying to prevent the growth of the federal government, and in part because Hamilton was pro-British and anti-France, which was the opposite of Jefferson. So Jefferson eventually resigned from the cabinet, partly to avoid being fired by Washington, and he went back to Monticello. From there, he organized a campaign to further thwart Hamilton and the Federalists. Hamilton had helped found a Federalist newspaper called the Gazette of the United States, and many of Hamilton's Federalist papers were published in it. So Jefferson and Madison created a rival paper called the National Gazette. So we got the Gazette of the United States, and now we get the National Gazette. And the National Gazette, that's Jefferson and Madison's paper, often carried Madison's anti-Federalist writings. In 1796, Jefferson reluctantly entered the presidential election, and he came in second to John Adams. So because of the way the Electoral College worked at the time, the person in second place became the vice president. And so Jefferson spent the next four years undercutting Adams' policies from one side, while Hamilton was undercutting them from the other side. Both the National Gazette and the Gazette of the United States were pretty harsh on Adams, so it's not surprising that he didn't get re-elected in the 1800 election. 
It's one of the reasons that Adams and Jefferson didn't speak for 14 years after that election. The Democratic-Republican Party, that's Jefferson's party, was trying to get Jefferson elected as president in that next election. And Aaron Burr was going to be their choice as the vice president because there was a change now that let them have someone from the same party be the president and the vice president. They had amended the Constitution to do that. But that election ended up in a tie accidentally between Jefferson and Aaron Burr. So it went to the House of Representatives to be decided, and it took them 36 rounds of voting to decide. Hamilton eventually started campaigning for Jefferson in secret because even though he hated Jefferson, he apparently hated Aaron Burr even more. So eventually Jefferson became president. By the way, Burr did serve as Jefferson's vice president, but towards the end of their first term, Burr got in a duel with Hamilton and shot him and killed him, which also killed Burr's political career. I mentioned last episode that Adams did not attend Jefferson's initial inauguration, but maybe he should have, as Jefferson gave a very unifying and conciliatory speech in his inaugural address. So in 1800, Thomas Jefferson became the United States' third president, and it was the first peaceful transition of power from one party to another, and it set the stage for how subsequent power transfers were handled. One of Jefferson's first tests as president came from, of all things, pirates. In the Mediterranean Sea, along the north coast of Africa, there was an area that American ships were trying to trade with, but they were frequently being attacked by pirates. Now, this area of the North African coast was known as the Barbary Coast, so the pirates were called the Barbary Pirates. There were a whole group of sort of uncivilized areas right there along the North African coast, and that part of the Mediterranean was just rife with pirates, some of whom were sort of sponsored by the warlords, or pashas, as they were known, of the area. So they were sort of more like privateers. Anyway, the American ships that were trying to trade with Mediterranean Spain and the south part of France, Italy, North Africa, etc., were being regularly attacked by the pirates, and many American sailors were captured and either imprisoned and then maybe ransomed or forced to work on pirate ships. So Jefferson had to do something. So in 1801, he sent some U.S. naval ships to the Mediterranean. Jefferson asked Congress to declare war on the Barbary Coast countries, and so they did. It was America's first official war. So our first war, officially, as a country, was attacking a bunch of pirates. Those ships bombarded Tripoli, a city in Tunisia, and eventually the leader of the pirates signed a peace treaty that kept them from attacking American ships. So in our first war, we won the war pretty easily. So now the colonies are now 2-0. First, we defeated the British Empire, and then lowering our sights just a little bit, we defeated a group of pirates. Now, meanwhile, in, the, in Europe, like I mentioned in the episode about Napoleon, France had ended its revolution at this time, 1800s. And now, in 1803, Napoleon was in a wheeling and dealing mood. Jefferson sent some negotiators to France to ask if they would be willing to sell the area around New Orleans and the rights to ship traffic on the Mississippi River. And he was asking to buy this for $10 million, which is a lot for New Orleans in those days, because at that point it was just an outpost. And Napoleon, however, said, how about all the French holdings in North America for $15 million? 
The negotiators who were there in Paris were not authorized to accept this, but they said, let us think about it. And they thought about it for almost 37 seconds, and then they said, yes. Like I said in the episode about Napoleon, this is the best real estate deal since Manhattan, and maybe the best of all time. So by buying the Louisiana Purchase, as it came to be known, the U.S. more than doubled its size. It owned the rights to the Mississippi River, which, as it's the third longest river in the world and in the second largest in terms of drainage area, was a big deal in and of itself. And the U.S. now had a vast space of open land to its west, with no real European challengers for any of the land all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Yes, there were a lot of Indians living in that land, and we'll be coming back to that in a couple of episodes, because that competition between the U.S. settlers moving west and the Indian tribes that already lived there, well, that's going to be a big thing for quite a while. Now, the U.S. adding almost a million square miles of land was a huge deal, and I have to say, Jefferson actually handled this really, really well. But first, I should say that some of the things that France didn't know about this land that they sold was that it was some of the very best farmland anywhere on this planet or on any other planet. It's some of the most fertile land anywhere, and you can grow almost any type of non-tropical plant there. The land will eventually include Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, southern Minnesota, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, southern North Dakota, most of Montana, parts of Wyoming, Colorado, and the northeastern corner of New Mexico, where the small town of Clayton will eventually be founded. Anyway, that's basically the U.S. Great Plains, and like I said, it's amazingly fertile, naturally well-watered, and the climate is conducive for agriculture. I've said before that France is one of the most fertile places in the world, and all sorts of stuff just grows there, especially wine grapes. They grow there easily. But the Great Plains? I mean, you could fit two or three Frances in the space of the Louisiana Purchase. So yeah, 15 million was a good deal for that land. Jefferson was already thinking about U.S. expansion westward, and one of the things he negotiated was a cessation of Virginia's claim to a bunch of unsettled land to the northwest, which was basically Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana. Virginia had claimed that land because it was to the west. But Jefferson got Virginia to forego its claim to that land so that those areas could become new states as they were settled. Jefferson's administration more or less set up the process whereby an area could become a U.S. territory and become a somewhat self-governing space as a territory, and then it could vote as to whether it would become a U.S. state. And then the existing states would vote whether to accept it or not. Now, in addition to the problem with the Indians that already lived in those areas, there was also the question of whether those new states would allow slavery or not. Now, spoiler, this question is going to cause a very bloody war in about 60 years. Many of the leading politicians of the North wanted to abolish slavery, and they saw that new states, as they were added, those new states would have a voice in the federal government. If a new state came into the Union as a free state, which had outlawed slavery, that would eventually cause a majority of non-slave states in the Senate, as well as non-slave representatives in the House of Representatives. 
The leading politicians of the South saw this as well, and they fought to have states that were in the southern part of these new territories added as slave states because they feared that the North and the federal government would outlaw slavery eventually because there'd be an imbalance of free states versus slave states. This divide about slavery, new states, and states' rights is going to dominate the politics of the United States for the first 70 years of the 1800s. Now, Jefferson himself was a slave owner, as I said, and he was from Virginia, a very slave-dependent state. He was also a firm believer in states' rights, believing that a state should have sovereignty over its own territory and that the federal government should not be able to force the state to do something against the will of the citizens of that state. This was, in part, a defense of slavery, but it was also a very important check and balance against the tyranny of a big central government. So the new lands to the west of the original 13 colonies were both a huge opportunity for the United States and its people, but they were also a major battleground in several ways, both in regards to the Indians and also whether they're going to be slave or free states. Jefferson himself asked that the new states be admitted only if they outlawed slavery, but the Senate never agreed to that plan, and there was a lot of contention about each state as it was admitted. But like I said, Jefferson and his administration handled it pretty well, and they were trying to be true to the spirit of the Constitution in terms of new territories and new states. There was some resistance from the states in that the Constitution didn't specifically allow the federal government to admit new states, and it does also have the phrase that all powers that were not specifically granted to the federal government by the Constitution are held by the states and the people. So did the federal government have the right to admit new states and dictate how they were admitted? Well, no, not constitutionally, but everyone just kind of eventually let it happen because it kind of made sense that it really was a federal issue and not the issue of any one state. So Jefferson's administration took a conservative approach but let the process of new states happen. The only new state that was admitted under Jefferson was Ohio. Vermont had come in under Washington and Kentucky and Tennessee under Adams, but it's really Jefferson's administration that set up the standards for the new states. And after Jefferson, there's a lot of new states that will be coming in. The other thing that Jefferson did with these new territories that he had just purchased from France was that he commissioned several teams of explorers to go out and map and explore these areas to the west and beyond. The most famous of these teams, and one of the most famous explorations ever, was conducted by Lewis and Clark. So honestly, the Lewis and Clark expedition is probably deserving of its own episode, if not an entire podcast about it, but I'm just going to summarize it here right now. If this is in any way going to be a short walk through history, I'm going to have to cut a few things out, but I don't like cutting this one out because it's such a cool bit of history. Anyway, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were commissioned by Jefferson to lead an expedition that started at Fort St. Louis on the Mississippi River and explored up the Missouri River into what is now Montana and eventually Washington State, and eventually they reached the Pacific Ocean. Then they came back and they brought back important navigation, terrain, and scientific information, as well as a lot of information about the inhabitants of the western regions. 
It was on this expedition that the famous Indian guide Sacagawea was one of the translators and one of the guides. Many of the artifacts that Lewis and Clark brought back are still on display in Jefferson's home of Monticello in Virginia. So, Thomas Jefferson was the president for two terms, serving from 1800 until 1808, and he won his second election in a huge landslide. He and his administration were immensely popular, and they presided over a fairly prosperous and peaceful era of American history. But Jefferson and his administration were not really able to provide any good answers for the problem of slavery and slave states, and the problem of whether new states should be allowed to come in as free states or slave states. There was no real solution reached. We're definitely going to come back to this problem. For his own part, it seems that Jefferson was politically and intellectually against slavery, and yet he owned slaves his entire adult life, and he represented a slave-dependent state. It's, again, one of the weird contradictions of Jefferson's story. His Enlightenment ideals never quite met up with his actual practices. But despite this, it's hard to ignore his legacy as one of the most important thinkers in American history. He wrote the Declaration of Independence, and he consulted on the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. He campaigned his whole life in favor of states' rights and the protection of human liberties, and he declared himself a lifelong enemy of tyranny. Ironically, if the people like Jefferson, who championed states' rights, had not also supported something as awful as slavery, we might never have had the American Civil War, which eventually led to a massive consolidation of power in the hands of the federal government and, as a side effect, the diminishing of the important balance of states' rights, something Jefferson would have been against. He really supported states' rights. At the end of his second term, like Washington, Jefferson refused to run again, which set a precedent that would last until Franklin Roosevelt in the mid-1940s. Jefferson retired to Monticello, and he spent his time in reading and designing more buildings for Monticello. He also helped found the University of Virginia, which was the first U.S. university that did not have any religious requirements for its students. Jefferson, like many other plantation owners, struggled with debt, and by the time he died, his lands were no longer providing enough income to cover the payments on his debt. Also, Jefferson had tried to sell off land to pay the debt, but he was having trouble selling land at any price because the free land that was available in the West made it difficult to sell land in the East. So after he had died, much of the land of Monticello was sold off at bargain basement prices, though the actual house and some of the land was later purchased back by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has preserved it as a historical place. Jefferson's later years were spent outside of the spotlight of national politics. He was still involved in local politics in Virginia, though he never held another political office. As I mentioned last episode, Jefferson eventually regained a bit of his friendship with John Adams, and they corresponded by letter for 14 years, though they never saw each other again. Jefferson, like Adams, died on July 4, 1826, exactly 50 years after the Declaration of Independence. He is clearly one of the most influential of the Founding Fathers and one of the most famous Americans of all time. 
So next episode, I've got to rectify a bit of a wrong in my podcast storyline and talk about one of the other founding fathers who is at least as big a deal as Jefferson and Washington and Adams. If those guys deserve their own episode, well, so does Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm.